Welcome to Meowcore, the podcast where I, Laura, show my cool friend Panya the Meow. music that I like, and that is mostly hard rock and heavy metal. How are you doing, Panya? Oh man, the world is a crazy, crazy place, and it is really screwing up like my sleep and my eating. I look mm. forward to this all week. All mm. week. Yeah, so let's have a party. Yes, let's have a party. Let's not think about the real world for a little while. I promise, yeah. Meowsters, it's okay to do that. It's okay to avoid the real world for a little while. And go mm -hmm. find solace in the things that you love. Yeah, important message right now. And, uh... That's that's the right band for escapism and for partying. What is partying, especially when you when you're not feeling well? You could what still band? party with Depeche Mode. Oh, Depeche Mode. Yeah, I know some of mm. these songs. Mm hmm. I haven't chosen any uh, hits today, except maybe Halo. Okay, um, new songs. Because, because. I'm just, I just love them so much, and I didn't want to miss the occasion to show you what people call deep cuts, the Ooh. songs that are slow and soft, and songs that, are, that have lyrics that I love. So, Depeche Mode begins uh, in the early 80s, first album come, comes out in 81. These boys come from a small town near London. In the first few years, they spend their time explaining to uh, radio DJs and mostly TV people in interviews that no, they don't have a drummer, they're using a drum machine. Mm, real instruments, they think that these synthesizers are real instruments, they don't intend to change that, they're going to use synthesizers. And in the meantime, it seems like the German audience accepts them better than the British audience. It's interesting that that just seems like a, not the music explaining, but the German audience accepts them better. That seems uh, familiar. Mm, maybe because a lot of electronic music at the time was coming from Germany. What sounds familiar to you? Uh, personal Jesus, enjoy the silence, and people are people. Those are the ones I know. There may be um, others by them that are familiar that I don't realize are by them. Mm -hmm. Or that aren't on the top of my head right now. Mm -hmm. But those are the ones I know I know. You and I will go to 1986. And I want us to read the lyrics first of a song called Shake the Disease. So okay. if, you, if you want, you can read them on Spotify. And then let's watch the video on YouTube, because I want you to see the lyrics, and I want you to see my boys. Wow. I don't know if this is a song about just really wanting someone to be committed to you, or if this is a song about how hard it is to say certain things when you're depressed or whatever. Wow, yeah. I don't know which one it is. Maybe it's both. It Maybe be both. both. They have situations like these when, and he's not. Maybe he's not able to express himself for whatever reason. Hmm. Something he calls a disease. I mean, there are there are a lot of things that people say that, and 
given that it's men writing these lyrics and that it's pretty traditional for men not they're not supposed to speak words of love they're not supposed to to you know what i mean mm mm-hmm. so like yeah. it, women are all i love you you're the light of my life men are not supposed to say things like that no maybe that may be the disease as well yeah oh that's nice and he has a moment where he says i've got things to do and i've said before that i know you have too when I'm not there in spirit, I'll be there. So can you keep connect- connected the way I do? Can you share my way of life, maybe? That's not what I hear in that. No? I hear we don't have to be doing the same things to be connected. Mm-hmm. I yeah. hear I hear we don't have to be this. We don't have to become one person to stay connected I hear we can do separate things and we'll still care about each other or I will still care about you even if you're not physically right there even if I'm not physically right there we're still important to each other and I think that's a thing that in relationships especially for teens and young adults they're taught by movies and music and and books that a relationship is living in each other's pockets all the time. That if you're not doing the same things together all the time, if you don't like all the same things, exactly the same things, then you're not really in love. And that's so wrong. Mm. That's so incorrect. Is it important to have things that you share? Yes. Yes, it is. There should be things that you share, but there should be things that you don't share too. Or there should Mm -hmm. be things that you share in different ways. Yes, Mm -hmm. my husband and I, we've been together for nearly 20 years now. My husband and I share a love of sci-fi and fantasy in pretty much all its forms. But our specific focuses in that are different. And we get Mm -hmm. a lot of joy out of discussing and comparing the differences in what we like. And the similarities in what we like. And there are things that he likes that I for various reasons I can't watch some of the movies he watches I like to sleep at night Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he's not as fond of the more romantic stuff the way that I am so Mm -hmm. there are places where it doesn't overlap which is fine this is good yeah but and I like that this song has a whole verse talking about the fact that that's fine that you Mm -hmm. can still be devoted to each other forever and be separate. Still be separate people. Let's listen to mm-hmm. it. Let's listen to Shake the Disease by Depeche Mode. I'm sorry, I had to stop watching the video. The videography was making me dizzy. Yeah, possible. I get that. It's very yeah. it's very twisty and the hairstyles are very eighties and I'm just what? <laughs> I wonder why they decided to tilt like that and make us dizzy though because that's the way things were in the 80s that was the cool new thing that videographers had discovered and everybody had to do it that's why but what did it have to do with maybe it, I don't think house. it had anything to do with the song I think it was just them playing with this new thing they discovered we can tilt Everything. It's yeah. tilt everything. It's 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 eighties <laughs> weirdness, that's all you need to know.
But they were in a house. Some of them were in. I think it was a hotel room, actually. Yeah. I think yeah. it was a hotel room. It seemed mm-hmm. smaller, which would uh, go in with that I have things to do that you're not a part of kind of idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the, the use of the phone implies communication, but not mm-hmm. face-to-face communication or struggles with communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that wasn't like a big hit, but it's a big favorite among Depeche Mode fans. Shake the disease. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know that I've ever paid close enough attention to the ones that I know to actually hear the differences in their voices. But in that one, it was possibly because I was watching it and I could see it jump, but still I could hear the difference. And for mm-hmm. all that, like. It's clear that they're all good singers, but I'm curious to know if they did any modification of their voices as well or not. Mm, not not famously. Maybe some sort of echo effect, but... Well, the, Im- yeah. the impression I've gotten from other songs is that, and, and other artists as well, is that if you have singer multiple singers whose voices are similar then having them all sing the same lyrics and even the same notes can generate that echo effect without having oh. to do anything because of the slight differences in the tones of their voices you know they're oh, not trying okay. to imitate each other or anything but because voices are naturally the timbers are just a little different so if you overlay three or more people who are singing the same lyrics and the same notes, you still kind of get that echo effect because they're never going to be quite precise. And hmm. you get the differences in the timbers. Hmm. I hadn't thought about that. And I think that's okay. also a thing that's used in recording, even with solo artists. And it's why a lot of solo artists, when they're on tour, will have backing tracks. Because they're the ones on the backing tracks as well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so to get to to duplicate the same effect from the recording, they just use the recording and lay their own voice on top of it live. Yeah, true. But these three guys are two, three. It looked like three. I guess they were all doing uh, backing vocals, but the the blonde gentleman Martin and uh, Dave, their main singer, were were the ones leading. Yeah. Yeah, there's just the one, the one line that that a different guy sings. Understand me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that blonde curly gentleman that sings "Understand Me" is the main songwriter. Any okay. Depeche Mode f- song you you think of, uh, It's No Good, um, Personal Jesus, I Feel You, I Enjoy the Silence, People of People, that, that was melody and lyrics written by Martin Gore. Okay. Mm. okay. And I want to go listen to two songs where he is singing. There's always, there's always on every album one or two songs where Martin is singing. Okay. Mm. I mean, he's a good singer, but they didn't give him a lot Mm -hmm. to do, or he didn't give himself a lot to do, I guess I should say, Mm -hmm. in this one. Yeah. He chooses for himself the the slowest, the the gentlest, quietest songs very often. So 
gets the gems. Okay. Mm. So, in the second part of the 80s, they go on bigger tours, including the US. They fill something called the, the Rose, Bowl, Ro Rose Bowl. Where was that? I don't remember. Philadelphia, maybe. It's so, a, they were proud of that. It's a big football thing. Uh, in, mm -hmm. the, in the weeks leading up to the Super Bowl, there are a number of other bowls. Um, the Rose Bowl is fairly well-known, fairly famous. Uh, as far mm -hmm. as American football goes, there are a number of them. Some of them, the names have changed. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Getting, getting, it's not quite the same honor as playing the halftime at the Super Bowl has become. Although mm -hmm. I don't honestly think of that as much of an honor. But being able to perform at one of the other bowls is, is considered pretty special. Mm-hmm. And then in 1990 uh, comes an album called Violator that makes them really world famous. That's the one that has Enjoy the Silence and Personal Jesus. Mm. And from that one, did I want something from that one? No. I don't think you did. We'll skip that. Let's go to... Well, that's the one that everybody later. knows, so let's listen to Deep Cats. Yeah. We'll go in seven years later in um, Ultra, and we'll listen to The Bottom Line. Okay. Let's listen to The Bottom Line by Depeche Mode. That is a very painful song. Painful? Because he's like a moth to the flame? It talks about repeating an action that hurts over and over and over yeah almost hopelessly mm -hmm. and on the one hand because it's cast in the conceptuality of being in love we feel you're left with the impression that that's what makes it okay if you're in love then it's okay to keep chasing something that hurts Hmm. But if you dig yeah. under that, which is really kind of a, a false gilding on top, he's a moth, he says he's dying, it doesn't matter, hmm. like, the, even the very first line, a, a cat comes in from the rain and immediately goes back out to do it again, and we know cats don't like to be in the rain, but he's doing it anyway, that it hurts. Hmm to keep doing it that's that's very painful and very familiar mm -hmm. many of us can relate and then you can't figure out why you can't let go of this even though it's hurting you on the other hand yeah. i can this one definitely makes it clear why this is the musician this is the the group that follows up on jean-michel jarre because you can mm -hmm. hear I don't want to assume that they were influenced by him, but you can hear the similarity in the in the things yeah. that they're doing, in the sounds. Yeah. These noises that they turned into sound, into music. Yeah. And I found it interesting that, like, the first 
20, 30 seconds and the last 20, 30 seconds, there's no lyrics. There's no, it's just the synthesizer sounds. It's just the keyboardist or, or whomever. Although there was definitely some guitar there in the beginning. There was definitely mm-hmm. some guitar there. Yeah. Late in the, in the 80s, Martin started playing the guitar. Then they had producers that encouraged them. At one point, they had a producer who said they had decided to never repeat the same sound and they were running out of sounds. And I said, if you like this guitar, use it in the next song too. If you like this keyboard effect, use it in the next song. And that was freeing for them. Running out of sounds, please. Mm -hmm. They were sampling and looking for new keyboards and... And then they realized that if something is good, they can use it again. Yeah. And then not every song has to be a unique collection of sounds. I mean, every song will end up being a unique collection of sounds, even if the individual sounds in it aren't themselves unique from what came before. But if you assemble them in a different order, with different pitches, different lengths... Mm. whatever, then it will still be unique. Yeah, I guess that's something they realized. I feel like that connects into a sort of persistent argument in literature that there are people who say that there are only this tiny limited number of stories and and we're just retelling them over and over and over and okay, fine. But all of the extra bits that you put around the edge, the setting, the specific characters, the the um, the prejudices mm-hmm. and personalities, all of these mean that you can tell boy meets girl five thousand times, and it will be a different story every time. Mm-hmm. And when people tell you that we're just retelling the same stories, it's kind of discouraging if you're an author. It's not necessarily discouraging, but it's often presented as an insult or a Mm -hmm. criticism. You haven't done anything new. Well, yeah, I have. I really have. Now, new does not necessarily mean good. (laughs) But just because you've retold Boy Meets Girl for the 15th time does not necessarily make it bad. Uh, refer back two or three episodes ago when I was talking about David Eddings, who wrote the same story three times, essentially. Mm-hmm. But every time it was a slightly different story because there were the elements surrounding it were altering it. Yeah. And anyway, this one sounded very different from the song that came before. So even if they are repeating sounds, I don't care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are very good songs. I'm, I'm very confident they're all very good songs. Yeah. So we're, st- we're sticking with Martin. We're going to watch him perform a song called Jezebel live sometime in the 2000s. Mm. I had to show you what sort of a party it is watching Depeche Mode live and his little dance also. Party? And all the glittery. Even yeah, though it's so the... slow, it's still a party. Oh, they have quicker songs. Oh, I know songs. that. <laughs> it's a party. Okay, and, okay. Uh, you can see how much he loves glitter. It's very nice to watch him. So it's it's very 80s glam is what you're saying. We've mm, had, we yeah. have David Bowie influence here. Yeah. Which is not necessarily bad, just an observation. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there's a, free, there's a freedom about Martin. Oh, always, the way he expressed himself was so nice. He had 
he was wearing skirts, like leather skirts in the 80s and BDSM gear. And then in the 2000s, he was like, yeah, let's put all the glitter on and I'll dance with my guitar. It's great fun. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's watch uh, Jezebel by Depeche Mode live in Barcelona. Eh, the video just stopped. It was going to do something dramatic and the video stopped. Why? You wanted more? <laughs> I always want more. Yeah, it was a fun one. The bottom line is I follow you. <laughs> more! Okay, that sounds nice. See? You see that it's a party? It's a slower party. It's 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 the the quiet part of the party where uh you you've spent twenty minutes and screaming and dancing and singing with a beat that's faster than your own heart and now everybody has to sit down and have a drink and listen to something a little slower, but it's still a party. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's confident in this relationship that he has, even though the people around him are like, oh, you will see, she, she's bad for you, this Jezebel. Well, given the, uh, the ease with which that particular term is slung around, it's entirely possible that the object of the song isn't even particularly bad. It's simply that the people to whom he is singing or, or informing uh, don't want him to be around this person, so they invent nonsense. Mm -hmm. But that's pretty common. But I find it interesting, now that I've I've heard this one and and a couple of the others, and in comparison to, especially people are people, he did not have any hesitation whatsoever in taking on prejudices and stereotypes and saying, you're full of nonsense. Oh, yeah. He had yeah, no, and yet there's no point in in any of these songs where he's turning it back on people. It's it's this the simple quiet. What's the point of having this prejudice? It's it's gaining you nothing. Mm -hmm. It's not even about it. It's not even anger. It's it's simply your prejudice doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. It's it's that simple. And I think that too is, is interesting, especially given the timings of these, because you would think that songs that address these issues would have appeared either in the 70s or closer to now. Mm -hmm. Closer to now, although now that I look at this date, let's see. Well, the video was posted, the video that you gave me was posted 12 years ago, but that doesn't have anything to do with when it was actually, when it actually occurred. Or when the song was released. When was that This song? must have been mid-2000s. Yeah. 2004, 2006. But that doesn't say when the song was released. Let's go find out. But he's always been a deep, deep thinker. It didn't have to... Okay, that was released in 2009. So, yeah, the timing of that one is particular to some of the things I remember going on then. Mm. There was. What are you thinking of? There was a bit of a greater focus during that time, at least in the spaces I was paying attention to, on uh, the role of the perception of women in how they were taught to handle threats to themselves. Mm. 
there there was a focus on understanding that telling a woman don't wear that don't go there wasn't effective Mm -hmm. and that prejudices surrounding the appearance of a woman and the way she carried herself were were not great Mm -hmm. i don't believe that they're directly connected but uh one of the big deals from a few years before was an alleged rape case um, with the Duke University lacrosse team that occurred a few years before. Uh, And there was just, it was, it was insane in the United States. There was a lot of, of focus on, on the ideas that, if a woman accused someone of rape, then she should be believed always. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, of focus around what made a woman believable in those circumstances and whose lives would be ruined by such an accusation in the long term and in the short term. Um, what it meant Mm -hmm. to be, um, what it meant to be, uh, luring a guy <laughs> kind of thing. You know, she yeah, was asking for it. What does that mean? Asking for it. There was a lot of focus on that. So it wouldn't surprise me to discover that and, and that made it, but that was mainstream USA. So I don't know if that would have affected the writing of this song or not. Mm-hmm. But it was a big deal for a couple of years at that time, and this song does directly address some of those ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, as you said, people are people. He's just asking, I can't understand what makes a man hate another man. Help yeah. me understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's been uh, angrier and more sarcastic sometimes. They have a song called Blasphemous Rumors, um, and he goes, I don't want to start any blasphemous rumors but i think that god's got a sick sense sick sense of humor mm. and when i die i expect to see him laughing after he's talked about um a girl who tries suicide and then a girl who wants to live but she gets killed in a car crash and he he's talking about this random evil that happens to people and where is the good god that's supposed to prevent it mm-hmm. so that's that's a sharper sense Mm, that's true and i can see where that one in particular would appeal to you (laughs) Mm -hmm. and i remember blasphemous rumors talked about in christian videos that talked about um the evils of of modern rock music oh of course of course because how dare you question it yep that's a different discussion Mm -hmm. we're especially not going to have any religious discussions right now no, we don't need that. Mm, we will listen to uh, Dave now, the the main singer, Dave Gahan. We'll go to the devotional DVD and we'll watch um, Halo. And uh, I thought we weren't talking about religious stuff. <laughs> you give me a mm, song named Halo. <laughs> not necessarily religious, but it is about guilt. And that is what struck me when I first heard it. Okay, let's go watch Halo by Depeche Mode. Thank you very much.
there's your party. Boy couldn't even yes. stand still. Yes. Not really sure about the haircut, but he's very wet. Yes. Yes. Somebody needs to pour a bucket of water over him and then wrap him in a dry towel. Mm-hmm. He started the show in a full suit, a beautiful suit. That he was getting wetter and sweatier and unbuttoning and taking things off. <laughs> so, so the hair was okay at the start. Now it's just... It's just strings. It's just strings being slung around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but there's your party. And I do. It's very interesting to see him right there in the front with the spotlight and the right there at the front and he's in he's in the black and the suit and the moving around and the dancing and then there's the the trio in the back with their keyboards and they're pretty still except for a little bobbing to the beat and wearing mm -hmm. the the shiny 80s synthesizer electronica kind of look that the contrast is fascinating <laughs> and actually yeah. i feel like that's carried through in the music because what he's singing and the way he's singing it is very like the music is very synthesizer it's very electronica but what he's singing and how he's singing it isn't what i think of as electronica at all and the contrast again is part of what makes it what it is yeah it's very romantic very heartfelt mm -hmm. very ballad like mm -hmm. and that's that's interesting and for me, back then, years ago, when I was getting into Depeche Mode, when, back when I was sure I was going to hell and living with that guilt, it was so strange for someone to say to me, I can see by the way you're sitting that you're uncomfortable. So come here and let's do things that will make us happy. And when our worlds crumble, though we may deserve it, it will have been worth it. I just... I was done. I was devoted to Depeche Mode at that moment. <laughs> Poor Laura. <laughs> Trapped in a world that tells her that, that nothing she does will ever be good enough. And that you're just marking time until mm -hmm. God takes you and throws you into hell. And along came Martin Gore who offered intimacy. And I'm like, what? And who said, I can it get, doesn't I matter. Can you can you can has happy, you can has good time. Mm. It does not matter. Come with and me. And he's not arguing with you about your guilt. He's just accepting it and he's saying, "Like okay, you feel guilty. Okay, sure. Let's go do something else now." Mm hmm. Very nice. So now we'll go listen to a lullaby. Still, Dave Gahan singing. A lullaby. It's called "Good Night Lovers." Let's watch it on YouTube. Let's watch Good Night Lovers by Depeche Mode. Excuse me, you did not warn me he got more attractive as he got older. <laughs> this is unacceptable. Rude. How am I supposed to pay attention to the song when he looks like that? This is why you are not supposed to give me videos. I get distracted. <laughs> But I got you into Dave Gahan now. It's part of the purpose. Ah, uh, this is not a good idea. I don't need more attractive people. I live with an attractive person. I don't need more. Rude. That's, that's so strange. Wow. I, I, ne I can never have enough of attractive people. 
I need the ability to concentrate on things. And if I'm constantly <laughs> staring at more attractive people, I cannot concentrate. I can only focus on them. Yes. Yeah, I get that. Rude. Okay. So Rude. sorry. Very nice, quiet, soft, breathy singing from him, though. Yes. I, I have used this as a lullaby before. It I worked. know that song. I don't know where I know it from. It's possible you gave it to me, honestly, but I know that Could song. Be. Hmm. Could be, could be. I might have also heard it on the radio. I don't know. I just, I, I'm just sitting here going, I know this song. Why do I know mm. this song? <laughs> and again, uh, he's talking about seeing somebody's danger signs, seeing somebody's red flags, but they're just enhancing this person's beauty. I feel like that's not something we should be celebrating, but that's... Mm. Maybe the same theme as the bottom line. Maybe yeah. Born yeah. a lover, born to suffer. That's I didn't hear this as being honestly directed towards a specific person externally. I heard it as more more personal that this is this is a song that's talking to the people who it's not about love in the romantic sense specifically it's not about love in the romantic in the sense of of sexual romantic love it's about it's talking to the people out in the world who care about other people the people who look at what's going on right now and and they're they're heartbroken by it that kind mm. of lover Mm, people for whom caring about others is a bedrock of who they are and maybe i'm really over personalizing this one i don't know oh you can have it you're one of the soul sisters and soul brothers yeah yeah like i think that's what what he's saying is like good night to you yes this is it is a hard thing to be one of those people mm -hmm. that's that's what i heard mm -hmm. and it's important for them to get good sleep Yes. Try and do that, guys. Yes, that's the only way you can continue to cope with with these things is by sleeping well, because otherwise you're just gonna tear yourself to shreds. Mm. Mm. So these nice albums continue. In uh, 2022, people are already thinking, when is the next one coming? And uh, in May 2022, we hear of the death of uh, one of their members, Andy Fletcher. Um, that's the tallest gentleman with the with the red hair, which wasn't always red in the 80s. Sometimes it was blonde. Mm. And the songs for the album that came out this year were already written at the time he died. Mm. And uh, Dave and Martin were kind of imagining that when Andy heard what they had written, he would say, why is the whole album about death? What, what are you guys doing? And then it turned out they were mourning him ahead of time. Mm-hmm, apparently. <laughs> yeah, they were still living with the idea of him in their minds and imagining how he would react to the songs. And we will watch a video that came out earlier this year. It's called Ghosts Again. Only Dave and Martin left now. On the other hand, even if he hadn't died, 
an album thinking about death at that time would have been because they would have written it during COVID mm-hmm. and death and dying was so much on everybody's minds then. So yeah. it's no wonder that it was written that way. Mm-hmm. And then it just would have taken on more personal because of his death. And that's mm. a different thing. Yep. So that's Depeche Mode today. Let's go see them. There was so much going on in that video, I almost couldn't pay attention to the music. <laughs> of course, Dave was crawling through a graveyard. Well, yes, but the... I think they were in New York City. But I may be wrong. Dave lives there. So okay. It could be. It just... The symbolism of the skull-topped cane of the two older gentlemen walking somewhere in their practically identical outfits... And then going to play chess, which is something older that men, elderly people. Yeah, yeah, older men playing chess in New York City is this sort of standard traditional image of of distinguished older men. <laughs> I don't know why that's a thing. I just know it's a thing. And in particular, for me at least, to be discussing death in New York City and showing the skyline for me always evokes nine eleven. Mm-hmm. every time I don't know if that's an yeah. evocation they wanted or not I just that that's what I get every time mm-hmm. so there was there was so much in the video that I almost couldn't pay attention to the lyrics mm-hmm. lyrics were a bit metaphorical we didn't have full sentences of ideology like before no there was a lot of imagery just sort of laid there in front of you like I'll get metaphorical here too like flowers in front of a grave just Mm. offerings and yet since as we said this was written during and after the COVID pandemic it makes sense that there wouldn't be whole thoughts there I don't know about you but I there was a lot of of broken up emotional kind of stuff going on then and a lot of the more of the less structured writing that I did during that time was very it was very unstructured in fact it was very it was very much just taking a lot of images and piling them up in a heap hmm For me, it was a time of panicking and a time of waiting because we were waiting for a vaccine and waiting for a better cure. A bit indefinite. No conclusions yet. I suppose, I don't know how much of this is due to the differences in the cultures where we live or simply the differences in our circumstances. You know, I spent a great deal of the beginning of COVID trying to figure out how to do my own job trying to settle into my new house and so to a certain extent the fact that I didn't have to go into the office that I could stay home which was comfortable for me that I had this this safe space 
that I could make more safe while I was trying to learn this job than I was, was staying home, which was what I would have wanted anyway. Mm. So in a lot of ways, I didn't have... I didn't have panic with COVID because I was getting to do what I would have wanted to do anyway if I had been given the option to stay mm-hmm. home and not have to try to figure out how to deal with people while I'm trying to figure out how to deal with this job and unpacking this new house. And, you know, mm-hmm. there were things there were things in people and circumstances that I missed after a while, but at least the first six months or so, it was it was less about panicking and about the disease and more about dealing with the expected and natural panic of oh god i'm in a brand new job in a brand new house and and i've got to get settled mm-hmm. and you were writing but and i don't think i was i don't think i was writing with anyone at the time oh, well like anybody could ever stop me writing even if i'm not telling mm-hmm. stories with someone else the stories are yeah. happening whether i want them to or not they're just kind of part of my default setting is I'm a storyteller this is what I do they may not ever make it to the page they may not be with other people but the stories are being told Mm -hmm. in my head and it's certainly Mm -hmm. true that there was a great deal of escapism for me at the time I was I was running away into various things and I was purposefully at the time trying to avoid certain kinds of news things because and this part of the discussion will go back to what we were talking about with that very first song actually the sources of information that I was looking at at the time were very different from the sources of information that my husband was looking at <laughs> and some of them were in direct opposition to each other mm. and although I don't want to say that um, that was bad for us. It did take us a little time to realize that part of the reason that we were differing on certain things was because we had different sources of information. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many other people, how many other relationships of any level were able to make that discovery. That some of the reasons that these disagreements were happening is because some people were looking at one group and some people were looking at another group and then coming back and comparing. And if you don't realize you're not starting from the same source, you can't you can't come to a reconciliation. You just sit there and tell each other that you're wrong. That was one of the tough things in my relationship with my therapist, because... Uh, on the tail of all that panicking, I got me a therapist, mm-hmm. but she was doubtful and she didn't want to take the vaccine. And she was telling me that maybe these numbers of COVID deaths are not real. And I was like, wait, I wanted some, I wanted some reason and help. And now I have to explain to my therapist that COVID exists. And yeah. Yeah. And I think... I think, at least, that the differences in the way people perceive things predicated on the sources they're getting that information from was always there. It's been Mm -hmm. there for a while. But because COVID was something so important, so life-threatening, those differences in source became much sharper. 
they became mm-hmm. much more vivid and much more important. Mm-hmm. Because if you are like you with your therapist, if you are having some talking to someone that you want to to soothe you, but you don't trust what they say, because what they say doesn't match the sources of information that you have, mm-hmm. you know, and at least with at least with a therapist, although you clearly didn't choose to do this, it's possible to simply walk away. I was it's, thinking of it. It's possible yeah. to say this is never going to work. I can't trust you mm-hmm. and simply walk exactly. away. Although the longer you've been with a the therapist, the harder that can be. They do become a friend. At least if you have a mm-hmm. good therapist, they better become a friend. If you if your therapist doesn't become a kind of friend, you're probably doing it wrong. But if you're having those same kind of discussions and arguments with family members that you're close to, with friends that you are close to, it becomes much, much harder to simply walk away mm-hmm. and much more painful when you do because you've lost them and you can't always understand why. Why has this loss happened? Um, mm. Which I think contributed heavily to the malaise that overtook pretty much everybody uh, last year and much of this year. It's not just about uh, the number of people that died from COVID. It's not just about the vaccine or the lack of vaccine it's not about the wars or the school shootings or any of that it's about being confronted even more sharply than we had been with the differences that can be generated between people who used to think alike because they've got different sources of information now Mm -hmm. and And then you start thinking oh this person that i liked is thinking and saying immoral things. Right. You start to get worried about it. And yet from their perspective, maybe it's not immoral. Maybe they're thinking the same thing about you. And how do you reconcile that? How do you cope with that? When you're operating from different sources of information. And in many ways, I think that difficulty was exacerbated by the fact that a lot of people suddenly realized, or maybe not suddenly, but were, were made to realize that trustworthiness is a harder commodity to come by than we believed it was. Yeah. Yeah. That we don't, a lot of what generates trust in something or someone is about whether or not we agree with them. Yep, you're biased. And now we've gotten but at least... very serious. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. But at least Depeche Mode is always here. And there's 15 albums, 15 studio albums that Good you can grief. escape to. Yes. And that is the thing about music and, and literature and all is you can choose if you want to be listening or reading or watching something that is linked to what's going on in the world. Or you can run away into something that's completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe something that doesn't even have lyrics. Right. Mm, and uh, Depeche Mode is the the basis for a lot of the dark romantic music that I like. A lot of metal and hard rock artists have quoted them as a, an inspiration. Um, Linkin Park will tell you that they adore Depeche Mode. 
you know, Villevalo has said that he loves Depeche Mode. And then... And that's interesting because I don't think of anything that they do that I've listened to. I don't think of any of that as particularly heavy. Mm. I don't... They have this thing called minor keys that I don't understand theoretically, but I, I can kind of tell. This, this music is darker. This music is merrier. And Depeche will sing in minor keys very often. And another thing that may have influenced the metal folks is these very often gloomy lyrics, very honest, and very often dealing in death. Yeah. Like, when Martin writes about desire, he will often say, Listen, life is short, so let's be together. Death is everywhere. Look at the flies smooshed on the windscreen. Death is everywhere, so come here and kiss me. <laughs> Look at the flies smushed on the windscreen. Thanks, Laura. Yeah, it, that's the song. It's called Flies on the Winds Windscreen. Okay. That was something that I was noticing with it, with some of the earlier ones is that they're uh, they're unabashedly romantic, but the titles of them that they chose don't lead you to think of a romanticism like the bottom line and shake the disease straight up romantic songs they really are mm -hmm. but you don't think romantic when you hear those titles mm -hmm. the titles yeah. don't sound like a song written by a lover or for a lover or about being in love they sound like something else they sound I like agree. they they sound like i don't know what they sound like but not that it's poetry. It's really good poetry. I mean, it is good poetry, but still. It's not the way I would title them, but then that takes you right back to what I was saying a minute ago about trustworthiness and agreement. And another thing is the, the their overall aesthetic, their love for black and the leather clothes. Although I find it interesting to look at what they wear on stage and... It is black and leather, but it's not, it's not what I think of as pure goth, black and leather. Mm. It's, um, the closest I can think of is like cyber goth because mm -hmm. it has, it has, there's a lot of, of silver leather as well. Uh, a lot of sharper cuts, less, much, much less of the metal studding that I associate with heavy metal goth. Mm-hmm. True. Actually, yeah, Cybergoth, I think, is the best thing, which is close cousin to Cyberpunk, which is both, which is a game, a music style, a miniature writing literature subgenre. Uh, mm. Classically, it William Gibson is the most well-known author in the cyberpunk subgenre. Uh, it's also a tabletop role-playing game from which the video game was developed. And Depeche Mode, I think, is frequently used by people who run the tabletop game as atmospheric music. Okay. Okay. I gotta Google that. Okay. Mm, do you want to tell us about some kitties or about an author? Let's start with some kitties. Um, right before we started, Marari was wandering around and telling me lots of meow meow. Very demanding. Very insistent. But now she is 
partly upside down on one of the scritchy boxes and apparently dreaming because I can see her toes twitching. <laughs> Be twitchy toes over here. Um, Buddy has laid claim to the pool of sunlight. Mm. So he's he's not he's not black at the moment. It's um I don't know if you know this, but a lot of cats who are who look black in shadows, if you get them in direct sunlight, they're kind of a sable brown. It's a very oh, dark yeah. brown. It's very dark. Um but they're not purely black. Yeah, direct light reveals it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm looking at Buddy and he's kind of brown colored and some of that is the sunlight and some of that is just the nature of, of his fur. And he is also thoroughly asleep. I don't know where the other two are. Kronos may be off causing trouble somewhere. Oh, Buddy woke up. I have no idea where Jana is. Uh, we decided last night that uh, Jana is a, a calico kitty. And so, as such, she has some patches of orange. And there is a common uh, myth around orange cats that all orange cats share one brain cell. Not any given orange cat has one brain cell, but that there is one brain cell between all of them. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Because Jana is part orange, we have decided that when she is especially crazy, she's got a hold of the orange brain cell for half a second. Oh, I thought it was when she was being sensible. That is when oh, the no, cell no, no, comes no, no. in. Oh, no, 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 no. When an orange cat gets a hold of the brain cell, they is especially crazy. <laughs> they is especially crazy. <laughs> and we also think that last week sometime, Jonna may have experienced her first heat. There will be mm. no kittens. There are no whole male cats in the house, and Jonna does not go outside. She doesn't mm. even try to go outside, really. But we think she may have experienced her first heat because normally when Jana talks to us, it's a kind of a. But these was there was like a solid day of just full on meow, yelling ah, up yeah, and down you were the telling hall. us, like, yeah, like literally yeah. this this sort of sharp yelling, mm -hmm. and it was it was really odd. And I'm, what are you doing? Are you okay? And the answer was no, no, she's not okay oh. because she is a Jana. The hormones. But she does. She stopped doing it after a day or so, and that was the only real evidence we had. There wasn't any other real behavior change, but there was certainly a great deal of yelling up and down the hall. And since we live in a house that had, before we bought it, had its size doubled by an add-on, our hall is very narrow and very long. So when she yells, it echoes. Of course, they, the cats love that hall because as far as they're concerned, it's a racetrack. And since <laughs> it's uh, wooden flooring, we get to watch them do the drifting at the ends where they skitter, 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 skitter as they're trying to make the turn in one direction or another. <laughs> um, fortunately, although the door is not directly at the end of the hall, it is close enough that they can usually swerve easily. So we have not yet so far had a cat smack face first into the wall. I do not think that's likely to happen. Uh, but there's definitely been some uh, enormously entertaining drifting that happens as they tear down the hall, chasing each other or just catting. Just jumping things. Mm -hmm. um, and at some point, and maybe we can make this some kind of, of bonus for our meowsters. So Mirari's favorite toys are the string type. And... Mm -hmm. We have trained them that if they 
bring us a toy in their mouth, they get treats. We tell them they're mighty hunters and they fetch us a toy. And it's not any kind of continuous fetching loop. Like we can't throw it and have them bring back and get another treat. Um, but there's a, a fluffy feather, like somebody truncated a feather boa that Mirari likes quite a lot. And if she finds it at the bedroom end of the house and brings it down to us in the living room all the way at the other end, there's this just adorable sort of trotting that she does. And she's very fluffy and she's holding her head up high so she doesn't step on it. And it's just the (laughs) cutest thing I've ever seen. And I want to try to get a video of it. And if I ever do, we'll we'll share it as a bonus for our meowsters. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely adorable. And she frequently talks around whatever it is she's caught, which is also hilarious. (laughs) We, we We call it announcing their kill, but he does the same thing. (laughs) <laughs> I got it, Mom. I got it. Yep. Yep. That's exactly what it is. Look, Mom. Look. Go get the treats, Mom. I have I have caught a thing for you. I'm bringing you dinner. <laughs> uh, at the old house, before we moved, Stormlight was allowed to go outside on occasion. And we came back from a three or four day trip once to discover that she had lined up two or three dead animals on our doorstep. Oh, there was sweet. there was a burb and um, some kind of vole, I think, and I think a snake. Uh, and <laughs> I think she thought that we weren't coming out or letting her in because we were starving, and so she was providing us with food. That mm. she's not allowed to go outside here, partly because I don't trust the dogs of the neighborhood. I know there are coyotes, although there were coyotes at the old place, and partly because I don't want to take the chance of her trying to go back to the old place Mm. she's she's an older kitty now at least 12 or 13 and i don't want to take the chance of her trying to go back Mm -hmm. she stays inside and she doesn't seem to mind very much so this week i would like to introduce you to an author who has across a limited number of series a very wide range her name is Lois McMaster Bujold. She is, God, she's in her 70s now. Uh, makes me feel very, very old. <laughs> uh, and yet she's older than me. And she not only writes excellent space opera, but excellent romance, and two or three different varieties of what I would think of as pure fantasy, including something that is closer but not the same as urban fantasy most people when they hear her name they think of her Vorkosigan saga which is more or less space opera but twined with politics a heavy dose of romance especially in certain books and an interesting look at prejudices in various forms. Our main character for whom, well, I don't want to say that the series is named for his family, but our main character is Miles Vorkosigan, the only son of a 
an aristocrat, an aristocratic family of his homeworld, which was recently reconnected to the rest of human space because a wormhole opened. While they were locked away, their society went through a number of very interesting things, and then while when they came back, uh, some uh, postmodern humans, I guess you could say, attacked them, and that was bad too. So, the world's uh, what's the name of the world? Let me find the name of the world. This should be uh, Bariar. So Bariar was primarily settled by Russians, which becomes evident in the, their names of locations and, and so forth. All of the, the big families there are Vor something. Uh, there's considered to be a Vor code of honor, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And when they were cut off from the rest of the humanity, they kind of regressed back to, I'm not really sure what era you would say, but it certainly, certainly socially was uh, very late medieval Hmm. with with lords and retainers and, and all of this. But in part due to that, they, they have, uh, their women are, are thought somewhat less of. Women are to be protected and, and they don't go to war and they can't hold head of houses seats and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's part of what we have here. But the other part is that when they were attacked by the post-human society, they were nuked. And there are still a couple of places, one of which is owned by the Vorkosigans, actually, that um, you can't go into Mm. there. They're still that badly damaged from the radiation. And also as a result of this, the Baryaran society has a huge, huge precedent or prejudice against what they refer to as mutants. No. Anybody whose genetics were mutated by radiation. Uh, hmm. And since the war with Setaganda took place over a hundred years ago, I think this prejudice has, as prejudices do, broadened and deepened to include anybody that doesn't look normal by their definition, hmm. whatever their definition of normal is. And Miles is not normal by anybody's definition Um, for a number of reasons, many of them political. His parents were attacked while he was in utero and because of the nature of the attack, it was a gas attack, he is not actually genetically deficient, but he did not form properly in the womb. So mm. according to his home society, he's a mutant. He is very mm. short. His bones are incredibly fragile. They did not form properly. He's not terribly strong. On the other hand, he's smart as a whip. You couldn't, if you tried to tie him down, he'd explode. Probably literally, honestly. He does not ever believe in giving up he doesn't care 
that he is physically not capable of doing certain things because he will try them anyway. (laughs) And he grew up more or less physically handicapped in a society that reveres war and the army. Not war specifically, but reveres uh, militariness, reveres the warrior credo and the warrior caste. Yeah, so he's unfit. Yeah, that's what he keeps being told. He doesn't care. (laughs) He forces himself, more or less, using his family power into military school and through military school. Um, He does everything he can to meet the standards, including things that he probably shouldn't do. He will cheat. Uh, Although he does not, when it comes to the physical stuff, he does not typically cheat by hacking the computer. He just cheats by never freaking giving up. He will not stop. Uh, However, this only gets him so far. Because he's one dude fighting against an entire society. And he's an only child. His Mm. grandfather, for much of the story, does not like him. Because he is, as far as the grandfather is concerned, deformed. Not, he is not acceptable. And he spends a great deal of time in the early books trying to explain to people that no, he's not in fact a mutant. That the damage to him occurred in the womb. That if his mother had never encountered the gas, he'd be fine. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And he wants so desperately to be valid in the eyes of his culture that he essentially kidnaps some mercenaries and lies his way into being their leader and that's the start of his adventures because you see once you start a lie of that magnitude either you fess up and everything goes to hell or you keep going (laughs) and this is miles nysmith vorkosigan who does not give up on anything so he keeps going and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger And eventually it does, in fact, collapse kind of spectacularly. But at that point, he has become important enough in and of himself, both as the mercenary Admiral Miles Nysmith and as the heir to Vorkosigan Miles, that he is able to retain some of what he's gained. Hmm. He's no longer permitted to retain absolute control of the mercenary fleet he's assembled because that's that's illegal that he might rebel against the emperor that's illegal um Hmm. but he is recruited into the the spy uh sub faction of his home world and he is incredibly clever and he is incredibly good at problem solving and he is beyond any character you've ever met in literature thinking on his feet Mm-hmm. And so the next series of stories that he appears in are Miles as a spy. Miles learning how to how to match what his homeworld wants in a different way. Um, he meets the woman who will become his wife and there is a book basically devoted to his courtship of her that takes place it's a comedy of manners honestly it's still in our familiar space opera kind of setting but it's a comedy of manners 
and it deals with uh, him courting her. Uh, she had an extremely abusive ex-husband, and her son does, in fact, suffer from a kind of mutation that can be corrected, but so she's got to deal with that, and here's Miles courting her, and Miles is not good at taking no for an answer, and mm. she's one of the few people in the stories to ever truly stand up to him. And when they finally get themselves straightened out, I don't want to say she acts as a leash, but he does kind of calm down a little after he gets married. And it's it's emphasized throughout a number of the stories in which they appear together that they're good for each other. That he mm. helps her to be, uh, to be more sturdy in and of herself. Because as far as he's concerned, she can do anything she puts her mind to. And so he helps her to overcome the, the things that were left in her head by her ex-husband. And mm. she helps him not to care quite so much about what other people think of him. Mm. Much of the element of... Uh, feminism and the prejudice against women is actually addressed much more by the couple of stories that revolve directly around Miles's mother, Cordelia. Cordelia is not a native of Bariar. Cordelia is, or at least originates, as a survey captain from a planet known as Beta, which is depicted as being about as far from Bariar as you can possibly imagine. They have pretty much no sexual restrictions. It is anything you think of when you think of a classic sci-fi liberal society, Beta is. There are no restrictions based on gender. Um, there are every possible kind of sexuality you can imagine. There are uh, licensed sexual therapists to help teach you or help you work through things. But it's not all sunshine and roses. Because when Cordelia comes back from a not great survey mission, having encountered some Bariarans, including uh, Papa Vorkosigan, whose name I can't remember off the top of my head, the people of her homeworld are absolutely convinced that she's been brainwashed to be in love with him. And they set out to brainwash her back. Mm. And it's not pleasant and it's not pretty. I was just thinking that I want to go visit them. There are definite elements of Beta that are very nice. But Bujol does not pull any punches when she points out that there's no such thing as a perfect society. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly true that Cordelia was confronted with some of the worst aspects of her society. And that there are characters from Beta on Beta who live perfectly ordinary, perfectly good lives. Um, there are characters within the entire Vorkosigan saga that cover all kinds of interesting things. There is a key character who is straight up a hermaphrodite. <laughs> and this character falls in love with Miles. Mm -hmm. And the only difficulty Miles has with it is the fact that he's purely heterosexual. 
You know, mm-hmm. it's it's not that he tells the character, oh, you can't be in love with me. It's I can't love you back. I'm mm-hmm. not interested in your gender. That's all. And actually, because it's Miles, it takes him a while to realize that the character's in love with him in the first place. He has to be hit over the back of the head with it pretty firmly. Uh, Miles has a type until he meets his wife. And a lot of what makes Miles' type has to do with he wants a female who will make up for what he perceives as his physical deficiencies. Um, Mm. And hermaphrodites physically don't tend to fall into that category. There are characters, there's a, there's, a, there's a side book that does not really involve Miles himself called Ethan of Athos that revolves around a world where there are no women. Mm. And a significant chunk of the plot is a discussion of how the men on this planet continue to reproduce. And pretty much all the men on the planet are gay. Um, okay. And some of that has to do with the fact that there are no women, so they can't really be heterosexual, but they're generally not gay. And you can, she doesn't pull any punches with that one either, that there are not great things about this society, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miles interacts with a group of characters who were, in fact, genetically modified to be uh, workers in space. They don't have legs. They have a second set of arms. They're mm. referred to as quaddies. And for at least one of the stories where Miles is involved with them, they're trying to escape what is effectively wage slavery. Yeah. And then they establish their own society and their own culture where they can be and behave the way they want to. And from thenceforth, although there's still politics, they are a part of the world. They're part of the universe space that he's created. Hmm. In comparison to a lot of other space opera type uh, series, I think Bujol does a much better job at showcasing just how many different ways humans would develop once we had more than one world to be on. You know, there's hmm. there's the Quadis, there's Beta, there's Bariar, there's Komar, there are a couple of other worlds that are only really touched on briefly. There's Setaganda, which takes genetic engineering to the farthest eugenic stretches you can imagine. Uh, it's pretty creepy. Hmm. Uh, and yet, even there, you meet characters who are... I don't want to say they're human, because that's part of the thrust of their story, is that they're not really. But... They have faults and flaws, the same as every other character. They are not depicted as perfect. Mm. No character in these stories is depicted as perfect. But then no character in these stories is depicted as unredeemable either. Um, There's a world that was effectively settled by the Mafia. They're not great either, but... and They have good pizza. Actually, it doesn't mention... She doesn't really talk a lot about food. Okay. So we don't know if they have good pizza. <laughs> we don't we don't know if they have good pizza at all. She slowed down a little uh recently in the last uh decade or so in putting out books about Miles. Uh and many of the more recent books in the Vorkosigan saga do not focus on Miles but on side characters. The one of the, a couple of them focus on his cousin. 
Mm. One of them focuses on his mother after his father dies, things like that. In fantasy, she created a world that is now known as the world of the five gods. But at least early on was known as Chalian because that's the name of the major country. It is a world in which the gods occasionally take direct hands and where following a specific god and it's organized as a family, uh, father, mother, daughter, son, and bastard. Yes, he is referred to as the bastard and there is a lot of difference in the way different characters view him, but he is the most significant character or the most significant god to the stories. The first book is called The Curse of Chalian, and at least part of the story is actually based on early Spanish history uh, at the time when Ferdinand and Isabella were negotiating their marriage and the idea of two countries uniting through marriage that may or may not be predicated on love. Mm. So we have this bit of politics in the background, but... The major part of the story revolves around this sort of older, broken-down soldier who stumbles into becoming the resolution of the titular curse. And the curse is curse is essentially the blessing of a god that didn't get drawn back up when the person it belongs to died. It's, it's kind of hard to explain, but what it means is that the family which is cursed, which is the royal family, nothing they turn their hands to goes well. Mm. The, the country is falling into to disarray, and it's typically not anything overtly magical. It's that the decisions they make turn out to be the wrong ones, or any event that occurs where they have had a hand in it will bend towards the worse outcome, that kind of thing. And their court becomes more corrupt, that kind of thing, partly due to the curse. Mm -hmm. Our hero, who is an older man, begins the story not in good health. Because he's just escaped from captivity. Uh, He doesn't really regain his good health for a while either. Because he's not put... none None of the things he's put through are particularly good to him. But he becomes attached to the household of the princess. Who's not yet the heir. And through a series of seemingly almost random events fulfills the terms of lifting the curse which is that he must be he must lay down his life three times for the house of Jalian. when he does this it turns out that what he's really doing it's kind of um mystical and philosophical what he's really doing is widening his soul enough to make room for the gods to reach through him and take the curse back up that by approaching as closely to death as he does every time, willingly, he is, he is making his soul big enough for this. Hmm. 
And I think when she initially wrote the book, she didn't have any real idea of, of following up the story at all because it's it's a pretty complete little story in itself. It doesn't it doesn't need a sequel, honestly. But she ends up writing a sequel that is based on the mother of the princess and what happens to her after the curse is lifted. And what ends up happening to her is that, well, her family, while she was under the curse, her family was taking care of her and she was kind of vague and not in good health. And and some of the things that she did in order to attempt to lift the curse weigh kind of heavily on her. And her husband was bisexual and that resulted in some things that were kind of weird for her. And so she spends much of the first part of the book just trying to get out from under the thumb of a lot of well-intentioned people who think that she still needs to be protected and taken care of. And of course, she is still the Dowager Queen. She's still connected to the royal family. She's still the mother of the, the princess or the queen. So they're all telling her, you can't do this because, you can't do that because, and eventually she gets fed up and just says, no, I'm going to do what I want. And what she wants ends up leading her into what the story refers to as demons. And basically Mm -hmm. demons are spirits of chaos. And it's possible for them to possess someone and, and just straight up possess them. And, and do what they want. Uh, they often take on elements of personality from the people they possess. They can possess multiple people in succession. They can possess animals. Um, but it's also possible for the person that they possess to come to terms with them. With their demon. And use the demon to, to cause things to happen. And pretty much everything you can use a demon to cause is chaotic. You know, but if you're in a battle mm-hmm. and you can cause the demon to make everybody's swords, every every enemy's sword strike miss, that's pretty helpful. Things like that. If you if you have a demon and you can get into the enemy's camp or near the enemy's camp and cause all of their food to start rotting early, that's that's pretty helpful. But when you do that, society looks at you kind of sideways because there's always the risk of the demon taking you over and there's always the risk of the demon just doing whatever the frick it wants to do. And in general, mm-hmm. society and the gods don't really look kindly on these demons running about loose. So our main character, Ista, essentially becomes a demon catcher. And again, like with our previous character, one of the prerequisites for undertaking this job is for her experiences to widen her soul to the point that the gods can reach through her. It also leaves her a a little more strange than she was before, but she doesn't care anymore. She has a purpose. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the thrust of Ista's book is she didn't have a purpose before and she was trapped into this curse. And the whole arc of her story is this 35, 40-year-old woman finding a purpose for herself. And the things that she goes through to find this. Uh, There's a third book that I don't like quite as much that touches on a different part of the world and deals with animal spirits. And again, it, it takes our character through a lot of painful choices and adventures and reminds you rather sharply that... 
there's no such thing as an unredeemably evil person. That everyone has reasons behind what they do. And that few choices in life with any weight to them are straightforward. That it's easy to see them as straightforward from the outside. And then you get into the middle of them. You get into the situation and they're no longer straightforward. There are also probably a round dozen at this point side stories revolving around a particular character who does carry a demon and befriends his demon and they become spies and, and other adventures and how they deal with that and how, how Penric deals with his demon and, and this, this kind of thing. The third series that is not, I think, as well known as any of the others is called the sharing knife and it of all of them is the closest to modern fantasy in that it is set in a world explicitly physically modeled on ohio with with the river mm-hmm. in the middle and and the wide plains and much of the land being populated by farmers and a great lake and the basic idea of the world of the sharing knife is that sometime in the past and nobody currently has any real idea how far back but some considerable time there was a kind of magic and a kind of power and some folk went mad with this power and attempted to to rule the world and build towers and they're referred to as wizards in the story but there's not a whole lot of detail there simply that things went very 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 wrong and as a result of them going wrong there are now scattered across the area pockets of call it evil that give birth to beings Mm. that in the story are referred to as malices. And when they start off, they're kind of shapeless mud rock things and they eat the life of other beings, including nature. The things that happen to, to incompletely consumed beings is referred to as blight. And within this world space, you have two major cultures. You have the farmers, who mostly don't entirely believe in this evil thing. And settle in towns and groups and literally farm. And it's um, 1800s or so American technology. Wagons and horses, no engines yet. Um, I can't remember if there are guns or not. I haven't read them in a while. Uh, but generally fairly peaceful, if somewhat insular, standard rural society. And then you have the Lake Walkers, whose entire purpose of their culture, everything in their culture, is geared towards finding and hunting these malices before they can consume enough life to become human-like. Mm-hmm. And the four books are about what happens when these two cultures collide really freaking hard. Our first main character is a young girl known as Fawn. She does not really approve of this name. Who uh, is uh, not exactly well treated by her family for 
the usual kinds of not being treated well by your family. Her older brothers are, are mischievous and bullying and her parents don't really think of her intelligence as being worth that much. Um, mm. She's mostly seen as a marriageable commodity and the usual sort of thing that happens in, in a insular rural community happens that uh, a young man of a neighboring family decides that he's she's leading him on and she gives in to him and they have sex and now she's ruined and pregnant. Mm. Mm. And as a result of the whole business and being frustrated with her family and not wanting to deal with the fact that they don't want to perceive that she might actually be in some ways growing up, she runs away from home and finds a malice. Mm. Oh, and the malice steals the life from her unborn baby. And then she oh. meets some lake walkers, the leader of which, well, leader's not the right word, but the most experienced of which is an older gentleman called Dag, who, since the death of his first wife, has been trying to die. And he's been trying to mm -hmm. die by being really frickin' reckless in hunting malices. Mm -hmm. and the remainder of the story is they fall in love he sees her for who she really is she does not put up with a number of um, cultural standards that he's trapped in he doesn't put up with the cultural standards she's trapped in either and <laughs> they effectively undertake an adventure to learn more about the world they're in more about how the two societies can interact better, can help each other, can stop seeing each other as enemies, because they do. Mm -hmm. And along the way, they take out, I don't know, four or five malices, I think, some of which are in the world of the book pretty advanced. And what we do they learn, look like? Uh, depends on what they eat. There's a significant malice they take out in, I think, the fourth book as they're way on their way back up the river, who hatched in a cave full of bats. It's got wings. It flies. Hmm. Most malice development, as, as the book puts it, uh, is, is uh, pushed by two things. All malices will develop towards a human kind of shape. But what else they take in will give them additional attributes, which is why the bat malice has wings and can fly. But um, when you look at one, can you tell that it's a malice? Oh, yes. You see it out in the wild? Okay. Oh, yes, absolutely. Every bit. It does mm -hmm. not look human. It will never look human. At worst, a, a very developed malice will look like a perfected human. They encounter one that is getting close to that and it gives them the creeps i mean any malice within the story will give you the creeps because you can tell just seeing one being near blight is is exhausting gives you cold chills you know all all of the the walking over the grave kind of of bits it, it's there with a malice they are mm -hmm. they're not good they don't talk well some of them talk advanced ones talk which is bad <laughs> um in all of her books, Malices are, I think, the closest she comes to pure evil. Mm -hmm. Because they're not human. They're not 
they're 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 are, are, are thoroughly external to human evil um and it's never really made clear what they want or what would happen to a malice that was not killed. But there are there are some some bits in the story where Dag and Fawn talk about that, you know, what do, if are they finding fewer malices? What would happen if they stopped looking? How will they know when they can stop? Hmm. Uh, as they move through various areas, you can see the evolution of Lake Walker and farmer culture. Uh, when you move into areas where malices haven't appeared for literally generations. Hmm. Uh, but Dag comes from an area where malices might every month. And they're, you know, they're talking about patrolling a, a fairly large area. The heart of the story is really the relationship between Fawn and Dag. And and how they learn about each other, how they how their relationship is a healthy, strong one. Mm-hmm. They rarely have fights. And when they do, it's usually a lack of communication. It's it's somebody's making an assumption that's not really warranted. Yeah. That kind of thing. Um, they also, the sharing knife books also have some of what I consider the best written sex scenes in science fiction and fantasy literature. Uh, they're not, they're not howlingly explicit. But they don't dodge mm. what it means mm. to have sex. And they're they're very nicely written, I think. Which, uh, it's, mm. in my experience, except for authors like Jack- Jacqueline Carey, which I've talked about before, which I talked mm. about last week, um, most science fiction and fantasy authors don't typically write sex scenes at all. Mm-hmm. They, they avoid... Uh, they fade to black at the bedroom door kind of thing. And I do feel like that's maybe not the best thing. On the other hand, uh, most science fiction fantasy authors are men. And while it's true that I'm doing my best to give you female authors in these recommendations, most of them are men and men aren't really that comfortable writing sex. So I think that probably they're has supposed to, to love it. You know, they're supposed to be visual creatures and sex driven, but they don't but want to don't write have about guts it. To write it. I don't think it's a guts thing. I think that it has to do with fear of intimacy. I don't know about fear so much as distraction. They don't think about it the same way. And I think some of that is, is a cultural conditioning. As much as anything else. But again, that's a different discussion. And mm-hmm. I've, I've found that a lot of uh, science fiction fantasy male authors don't typically include a whole lot of romance in their books. Uh, characters may have relationships, but these are rarely centered in the story when a man mm-hmm. is writing it. And I don't know how much of that is cultural, how much of that is 
predicated on the author themselves, on the editors, on what the publishers will accept. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a whole vast array of stuff that might go into that. But it also Apart doesn't from, it also doesn't yeah. only happen with men. There are, are female authors who also don't include those kinds of things. So because mm-hmm. it's a sci-fi book in the end it's not a romance book we don't mix those except that we we do and we should <laughs> yeah and uh yeah. in fact uh some of the earliest subgenres of sci-fi are explicitly referred to as planetary romances hmm. i may choose to give you some authors that have written some of those at a later date C.S. Lewis uh, has written some books that can be termed planetary romance. The John Carter series by Burroughs is frequently referred to as planetary romance. Well, in terms of finding finding a lover from a different planet. There's that, and there's some other elements to it, too. I think that's a deeper discussion than we want to have right now. When I bring you Mm. one of those authors, we'll talk about it in more depth. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this week's recommendation is Lois McMaster Bujold. She has a pretty wide array of subgenres and ideas that she focuses on in her work. One of the, uh, if you're looking for writers who've won awards, she's won the Hugo Award four times, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, I'm a lot of Nebula, a lot of Hugo here. Yeah, she's she is very very well acclaimed as far as sci-fi fantasy awards go and in my opinion she absolutely deserves them Mm -hmm. Uh, there are some potentially explosive discussions to be had around the awarding of the hugo and the nebula but as far as lois bujold goes those discussions don't apply she earned those awards Mm. okay all right thank you and thank you, Meowsters, for listening. And uh, we wish you some calm and peace and go eat something. Take your pills if you need to, if you get pills to take, and right. drink some water. And especially now, remember to prioritize self-care, which can include ignoring the heck out of what's going on in the world and reading something fun, listening to good music, playing games. Self-care includes taking the time to stop being angry the world will tell you that you should be angry about everything don't listen you don't have to be angry about everything remember to grow your hair as long as you want listen to heavy metal when you feel the need to be angry and take care of yourself bye-bye bye